How are we doing? We're starting in Acts today. I'm so, so excited. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts. If you are new to the Bible, that's going to be near the end of the Bible in what we call the New Testament. It's going to be the fifth book in the New Testament. And funny enough, this, this book, Acts, serves as kind of a transition piece within the New Testament, transitioning from the Gospels to the epistles or the rest of the New Testament that we see here. And so there's going to be a lot of fun stuff this morning as we begin to introduce this book a little bit more. Um, And I'm super excited about the next couple of months we're going to have together walking through because I feel like we can learn a lot from the first century church. Our greatest challenge as we walk through this book is simply going to be this. What is prescriptive in the book of Acts and what is descriptive. And I dare say that a lot of the things that people say are more descriptive should be prescriptive for us as a church. And what I mean by that, it's not just describing what happened in the first century church, but it's describing how the church should function as a whole moving forward, even here in the 21st century. And so as I begin to talk about Acts, there's actually, we say Acts, but it's, a, it's actually a, a, a smaller name um, when we say that. The actual name of the book is Acts of the Apostles, um, and it was given that name around 200, around 200 AD after Christ's death, about probably 170 years, and honestly, I think you could, one, one commenter wrote this, I think you could say that it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the early church. Not only through the apostles, because we're going to see the Holy Spirit move through a deacon named Stephen on Easter, and it's going to be incredible, but we're also going to see how he used so many different people in the first century to revolutionize how people view the earth and transform the world for his glory. It's incredible to see what happened. The author of this book is Luke. Paul considered him a co-worker. He's someone who's laboring along, and we're going to see that. There's going to be a, a moment in time in this book where it, stopped, where it changes from Luke is writing about Paul and all these other people to where he starts saying, we, because he comes alongside Paul in that. He was a physician or a doctor, a Gentile, so he was not a Jew, and he was occasionally one of Paul's traveling companions, which we're going to see throughout this. The recipient of this narrative, and that's what it is. It's a historical narrative. It's not necessarily a letter. Letter He's given an account. Was Theophilus. Now, we're going to see throughout this, we don't really know who Theophilus was. If you take and translate his name from Greek to English, it actually means lover of God. Lover of God. I know we've talked about phileo love here in the church, and really, Theo is God, Philus, lover. So, lover of God. We don't really know who he was, But we do know this, he is addressed as most excellent, so he could have been a Roman official, seeking knowledge, a generous patron, or even a symbolic representation of an open-minded reader. So it could have just been anyone who claimed to be a lover of God. One guy I read actually said it could have been Herod Agrippa II. I don't know how true that is, but that would be wild, um, because we're going to see him through this. It's a historical narrative. It's the second volume of a history If you go back to Luke's gospel, you'll see that he's writing to Theophilus as well with the intent of the truth being known about Jesus. So in Luke's gospel, which should be read as a prologue to Acts, he explicitly states that his purpose is to write in an orderly sequence. He wants you to know the truth from the beginning of Christ's ministry on earth throughout, and then he actually takes and pulls us into the story of what happens after 
Jesus ascends and acts. So picture the Gospels as this dramatic first half of like a superhero movie. That's probably the best way I can explain this in our terms. Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice, plants a seat of hope. But Acts, that's the explosive sequel. That's what we're seeing how this seed flourishes as it's planted. It's the seed sprouting into a powerful movement with ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the good news of the hero, Jesus, to the uttermost parts of the world. These men and women are not just reading the superhero comic anymore. They're living it. They're living this powerful, dynamic life change that's happened through the power of the Holy Spirit coming. So Acts isn't a a separate story. It's actually the fruit born of the seed sown in Luke's gospel. It's the amazing action-packed sequel showing how God can change everything. Everything. So the book of of Acts emphasizes the work of God through the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people who were transformed by God and devoted themselves to Jesus Christ. If Luke gave an explicit clue to his purpose anywhere in Acts for why he wrote it, it would be the thematic verse 8 of chapter 1. In response to the disciples' question about the respiration of the kingdom, Jesus set before them a mission to the world to be witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts, a movement of God begins, and that's why we call this the movement begins. Because we see the movement of the Holy Spirit among the church and among people from every language, tribe, tongue, and nation coming under the rule and reign of King Jesus. It's the establishment of the church. So I say all that to kind of introduce this, and I'm going to finish my introduction of this book before we get into the text with just one simple question. Why are we preaching Acts? Why preach this book? We're preaching through Acts because we believe that God is sovereign, that Jesus is king, and that the Holy Spirit still desires and is still doing world-changing work in and through his church. We believe that. We want you to see that we are still a part of a movement that God began before the foundation of the world. But more than that, we see the fruits of it even more so here in Acts, that we want to embrace the reality that the Holy Spirit of the living God, God the Spirit is still moving in and through his people, and he still wants to move in and through you to his glory and the good of people. That's what we want to see. That's why we're preaching through this book. So with that being said, The disciples we find in Acts 1 don't really seem like a group of men and women equipped and ready to, like, change the world. Um, In fact, they seem like a group of children when we find them in Acts 1 that are lost and afraid. And I don't know about you, but um, I had a very good knack when I was younger of when we would go to Walmart, and my parents are in here so they can actually attest to this, of disappearing I was a one-man act. I could disappear like nobody's business. And sometimes it was on purpose. I wanted to disappear. I would be hiding in a clothes rack, wanting them to find me playing a game of hide-and-seek that they didn't know we were playing. But other times, when I got lost in Walmart or wherever, I wasn't trying. And what I ended up finding out is I felt frozen and scared because all of a sudden the person, the people whom I love the most in the world, who are there to protect me, who are leading me, who are guiding me are gone. They're just gone. And of course, as a child, that terrifies me. I didn't know what to do really. 
Honestly, in a lot of situations, I didn't know what to do. The only thing I knew to do was to run around and try finding them or look where I last saw them or even go and try and find a, a worker if I could and say, hey, can you like do the pagey thing over the system where we can like find out where they're at? And so there were a lot of times, Jerry and Sharon Baker are the parents of John Baker. Can you come to the front of the store? Um, those were too numerous to count, probably like five or ten, at least five to ten. Are we thinking? Yep, yep. So uh, that's the way it works. But I was lost, and my only aim was to find my parents. I needed to be with them, and all I wanted was for them to hug me and to take me home. And I imagine this is kind of how the disciples felt here in Acts 1, verses 1 through 14, because the one they followed, who loved them more than anyone else in the world, had seemingly disappeared. He was gone, leaving them with a promise that they would not be alone, and yet they feel alone and that they would receive power and would tell of his wondrous good news to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's where we pick up the story. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts 1. We're going to go through verse 14 this morning. It says this, and you can read along behind me as well. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come to you in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, John, um, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come to you and we sit in your presence Jesus, as we proclaim you as the king you are and we read about your ascension and Holy Spirit, as we, Lord, hear the powerful good news of your coming. Holy Spirit, to indwell us, to indwell the disciples and to begin a movement. Lord, I, pr I pray that we would not move past all this beautiful promise and the waiting that happens in between and just want to jump to Acts 2. Lord, that we would rest in your provision and when you tell us to wait, that we would wait because it's important and that you would teach us something powerful from this text because, Lord, we need you. We need your power. We need your presence. Lord, we need to be equipped by you. And I pray this morning that you would speak 
And that, Lord, as you speak, Lord, you would move as well. And that we wouldn't just learn and apply, but we would learn. We'd be transformed and we would sit in this. And then that we would apply it. In Christ's name, amen. Can you imagine being in the disciples' shoes in this moment? It's like they are children waiting for a piece of mail to come with the most wonderful gift from a loved one who has moved far away. They know the gift is coming, but they just don't know when. And on top of that, they must wait. It's not like they've not witnessed Christ's faithfulness. They were with him for three years before his death. They witnessed him die. They walked with him after his resurrection for 40 days, according to verse 3. And then just like that, Jesus gives them their final marching orders. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You're going to change the world, but you must wait. Now, I don't know about you, but you can ask my wife, you can ask my parents, you can ask my in-laws, you can ask Zach, you can ask Curtis, you could even ask David Thew, you could ask anyone probably in this room who knows me pretty decently well, and they would tell you, I am not a very patient person. I like to move I like to get things done, and I'm really good at getting things done. I don't like to wait. In fact, if I'm being honest, one of my flaws is I'm kind of just on the off the cuff going to do something. If I see a pair of shoes I really like, and I'm like, yeah, I could wait on that, but then I could just get them. They're Adidas. I kind of want those. I'm going to buy them. It's just kind of the way I am. Um, in a lot of ways. And I know that's not good in some cases. In some cases, it's great. You tell me you need something done, let's get it done. In other ways, it's not so good, especially when it comes to my relationship with Jesus. Because when it comes to Jesus, I'm all about doing things for Jesus. I want to do things for him. He's prescribed for me things to do, but I kind of don't like waiting on him. I don't like waiting on the Spirit's empowerment. Even though I know it's better for me, I don't like it. Because it means I can't do now. It means I actually just have to sit with the Lord and be, which we've been talking about a lot over the last few weeks. And yet, here I read something so counterintuitive that it blows my mind. Christ's command was to wait on the Spirit of God. And I think it's important that we remember this as individuals and as a church. As we will see throughout this text, God is extremely intentional with his people and his mission. He's still intentional with you. He's still intentional about his mission. And I think if he told the disciples to wait on him in the first century church, maybe there's something for the 21st century church to learn here too, especially in a microwaved, action-oriented society and culture. There's something to learn here. In verses 1 through 3, we see this introduction to Luke's writing to Theophilus, and he informs him that he was dealing with the person and work of Jesus until his ascension in his gospel but now is turning his attention to the person and work of the Holy Spirit through the early church after Christ's ascension. So he's bringing us into the story where he left off at the end of the gospel. And it says that the disciples in verse 3 spent 40 days with him. And that's important. So they've spent 40 days with the risen Jesus. And we can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and see this talked about how he appeared to multiple disciples over that 40-day period in in a glorified state, and he was able to speak into their lives. And then just like that, he's gone. See, in verses 4 through 5, we see this weird request from Jesus. And while staying with them, is what it says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It seems strange when we read the Great Commission and it, in Matthew 28, 19, where it says, go and make disciples. And yet we come to this scene and Jesus is eating with his disciples and says, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't leave. Don't go yet. John baptized with water, but just in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is a verse that's so often overlooked when we, we try to jump to verse 8 here, where the promise of the Spirit is that he's going to come and he's going to empower us. But that's just like a microwave culture. That's just like us. We, we want to get to the action. We want to be used by God. We want to build his kingdom, and yet we aren't willing to wait on the Lord and lean into his presence. And so... Last week, I talked about what it meant to be a disciple. And this week, I, I want to modify my definition a little bit because I've been using John Mark Homer's definition of a disciple is someone who is with Jesus, who is becoming like him, and is doing the things he did. But I want to I modify that just a little bit to say a disciple is a person who devotes himself or herself to being with Jesus, being with his people, becoming like him, and doing as he did. And this definition is proved in this text. I don't, I don't have to go far for that. Notice Jesus is going away to be with the Father, and he says, you are going to go and be my witness to the uttermost parts of the world when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But don't you dare move until he comes. Without his presence, you are powerless. You cannot do this on your own. You need my presence and power. It's being with him. And it's him being with us. We cannot accomplish the Great Commission in our own strength. We cannot run ahead of the Holy Spirit. We must wait for his power. Ray Ortland kind of writes about this in, a, in an article he wrote a long time ago. And he, I think it's called Not Two Ways, But Three. But he's writing on the, doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. And I may have shared this before, but I think it's so powerful. He says, your life and mine are not so simple as a question of doing the Lord's work versus doing the devil's work. We face not two, but three possibilities. Doing the Lord's work the Lord's way, doing the Lord's work in our own way, or three, doing the devil's work. And the great divide is not between two and three, but between one and two. To do the Lord's work in the Lord's way is to humble ourselves and prayerfully depend on the power of the Holy Spirit according to the Scripture alone, moment by moment. To do the Lord's work in our way is to move forward with our good intentions and true theology and just keep doing what seems obvious and successful and even right. But on that final day, the Lord will look at it and say, this belongs not to me, but to you. It was not for me, but for your own glory. I do not see it as an accomplishment. I see it as a hindrance. And it will fall from our hands forever. It gets worse to do the Lord's work in our own way is to risk doing the devil's work. That's a powerful quote. But it's important to understand that's a sobering quote, but it's a reminder to me from a brother pastor that I must be committed to doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. And the Lord's work the Lord's way within the context of Acts, and I think this broadly comes to the entirety of the church throughout history, is that we wait on him and we move with him. So we come to verse five. The disciples must wait for the baptism and movement of the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. To move forward without the Holy Spirit was not to move forward at all. And friends, let me say this today. To move forward without the Holy Spirit is not to move forward at all. 
It doesn't happen. It's the Holy Spirit's empowerment working through us. It's abiding in Jesus. He says, you can do no good thing without me. It's not going to happen. It takes God working in and through us. Jesus says that the disciples will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? Well, let's look at where he's quoting from. If you go back to Matthew 3.11 or Mark 1.8 or Luke 3.16 or John 1.33, you can go and look at this, but I'm going to quote it for you. In all four Gospels, John the Baptist, who was functioning as a prophet, contrasts his own baptism with water, which is an outward symbolic picture of repentance, with an awesome heart transformation and empowering to be done by Jesus, the baptism of the Spirit. This was to be the fulfillment of Old Covenant promises, Old Testament promises that the Spirit of God would indwell men and women who repented and believed the gospel. And after the cross and resurrection, Jesus repeats this promise of a baptism with or in the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5. In fact, let's add verse 8 to this mix. It says in verses 5 and 8, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus doesn't leave much room for questioning what he means by being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And you might say, why am I focusing in on baptism of the Holy Spirit? I am going to be honest, as a, a pastor, as an, someone who is, who is called to shepherd you well, I know that so many of us come from many differing backgrounds. Some of you come from a church tradition that is more Pentecostal, charismatic in nature. Some of you come from Church of Christ backgrounds. Some of you come from Baptist backgrounds. And there's a lot of action-packed orientation within this phrase because you're like, what in the world does it mean by the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And we all come in here with differing understandings of that. And so I want to give you from the scriptures what I have found on this because I spent hours just, di just digging in here because I think it's that important. Jesus doesn't leave much room to question what he meant. You will receive power and you will be my witnesses. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was God coming to literally immerse the disciples or indwell them with and in his person, power, and presence. When Jesus says you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit in the context of Acts 1, he means the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you and you will ex receive extraordinary power for God-glorifying ministry. Extraordinary power. And this is different than a similar phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about how Jews and Gentiles have both become followers of Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. He says in that verse, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Here he's referring to the act by which the Spirit unites us to Jesus and to his body, the church. He's talking about conversion and unity within the church. And it's important that I bring that up because a lot of people will say, well, what does it mean here in Acts 1? What is Luke meaning by it, Jesus meaning by it, and then what is Paul meaning by it? So that's why I'm bringing this up. Paul uses this phrase to describe becoming a Christian and being a member of his church. And this is how we should interpret our own being baptized or sealed in the Spirit now. The baptism of the Holy Spirit Jesus speaks of in Acts 1 is not the normative pattern for us today. It was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But then we have the question of baptism of the Spirit versus fillings of the Spirit. That's another question. The Bible clearly demonstrates that the Holy Spirit empowers believers, like Curtis talked about a couple weeks ago, for the good works that God has prepared for them. He does. The Bible clearly demonstrates that. 
At its foundation, the New Testament metaphor, baptism in the Holy Spirit, refers to receiving the power of the Spirit, which only takes place, or the, the, the presence of the Spirit, which only takes place when someone becomes a legitimate follower of Jesus. The baptism of the Spirit, the, what Paul says is the seal of the Holy Spirit. Any other experiences with God the Spirit would be better described with another New Testament metaphor filled with the Holy Spirit. That is my position. We can have talks about that afterwards or lunch, get lunch with me. But that is my standing on this. And we're going to see this metaphor used multiple times throughout Acts. Multiple, especially with Stephen and some others and Philip. These subsequent feelings or empowerments come in all shapes and sizes, and we may be blessed with different gifts of the Spirit or different opportunities to be empowered witnesses. And yet, these special times of the Holy Spirit's felt presence and empowerment will generally not be continuous. They're going to be for seasons, for various reasons, that we simply do not have time to explore this morning, nor do we understand the mind of God. And by the way, just as a side note, we as a church believe that the gifts of the Spirit are all fully in action today. We believe that tongues are still a gift. We believe that healing is still a gift. We believe that prophecy is still a gift. We're not shying away from that. So we want you to know that and what you're getting into, especially if you're applying for membership. But that's something we are talking about as elders too, like how do these things work out in the daily workings of the church? How do they work in missional community? And if you say, well, what do you think about tongues? I guarantee if I asked a lot of people in this room to raise their hand if they have a personal prayer language or if they have received the gift of tongues, you'd be surprised by how many hands come up in this room, including my own. So I say all that to say, let's talk about that as time goes along through Acts and don't let that distract you. So verses six through eight, the word so presents a transition. So when they had come together, this is what the verses say, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke is transitioning from a conversation he was, that Jesus was having with his disciples in the upper room now to at the Mount of Olives where he's about to be ascended. And it's not surprising, based on Jesus' prior remarks about the coming of the Spirit and the fulfillment of God's promises, that the disciples thought the final coming of God's kingdom would be soon. In fact, in Jewish thought, God's promises often referred to the coming of Israel's final salvation. Also, the outpouring of the Spirit had strong end times associations, such as passages like Joel 2 um, and we're not going to get into that, but they were interpreted in Jewish national terms that saw a general outpouring of the Spirit on Israel as a mark of the day of the Lord when Israel would be restored to the former glory days of David and Solomon. Now, here, Jesus is, chained, is flipping the script on them. He doesn't rebuke the disciples for asking the question about the kingdom coming, but instead tells them that they do not and cannot know the time only the Father knows the exact time that he's going to restore all things. But he redirects their questions to the more important issue at hand. The disciples, he wanted them to think on a different idea of time. 
The disciples are thinking in regard to the final establishment of the kingdom of Israel. And they're also likely thinking of a decisive event. But Jesus redirects them away from a specific day and instead focuses their attention on the situation at hand in light of his resurrection. The kingdom now, through the power of the Spirit, is being restored and will continue to be restored through the Spirit who empowers his disciples. The movement now has begun. The church is going to be born. Now, what would this new movement of the Spirit entail? Well, the disciples would receive power, and they would become his witnesses. And the word witnesses here is transliterated from the Greek to English as martyr. Um, The purpose of the church is to be a witness to the world, to be the gospel on display, to be the body of Christ. And the church does not exist to make the world necessarily a better place to improve human life, to be the training ground for ethics, or to bring peace to the world, or warring people. The church exists to be a witness to Jesus. Now, all the rest of that is a byproduct of being a witness of Jesus. Without the witness of Jesus, the church is nothing more than a human improvement league. And that's the truth of it. Without the Spirit, because we can do a lot of those things without the Spirit of the living God indwelling us. So what does it mean to be a martyr or witness for Jesus? I think we often mistake what the word martyr means. I think a lot of us, if you were in any form of, and maybe I'm not speaking to some of you contextually here, but if you were in any form of youth ministry, you had the youth pastor who said, are you willing to die for Jesus? Right? And you're like, I'm going to take on hell with a water pistol. I'm ready to go. Like, I'm going to go anywhere, do anything. I want to do all of this. Like, let's go right now. I'm willing to die right now. But I think if you think that the word martyr in the context of Acts 1 just means dying for Jesus, you've made a grave mistake. I've made a grave mistake. In God's economy, we need to look at this word or concept differently. Sure, we should be prepared to die for the truth, like absolutely. But if that's all we think we're supposed to do, we've completely missed what Jesus is saying. Jesus doesn't ask us to die for him here. He asks us to live as witnesses for him. There's a difference there. To live as martyrs for him. That means the voluntary death of myself while I am still alive in a world that will harm me, scorn me, persecute me, and hold me in contempt. It means I'm willing to live for Jesus as a dead man. That's incredible. That's the life of the martyr. A witness to reality, to the person and work of Jesus in a world that hates him. God is not as interested in whether or not you are willing to die as a martyr as he is with whether or not you are willing to live as a witness. If you do so happen to die as a martyr for Jesus, though, praise God because it's because of his grace. So, with that being said, we're empowered to live as witnesses. Whether you look at verse 8 from a geographic or ethnic perspective, the theological principle is the same here. What is the extent of the power in the witness of the disciple of, disciples of Jesus given by the Holy Spirit? It's this, that God is going to empower us to make or multiply disciples among our neighbors and the nations to the end of the earth till we see Revelation 7 become a reality where all people, tribes, tongues, nations are around the throne worshiping King Jesus. But that begins with our neighbors and it moves out. So there is a geographic context of, yeah, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's the geographic, but I think it's important that we miss, that we don't miss Samaria because that's an ethnic understanding. 
Not only are we actually like to take the gospel to our neighbors who look like us, we're to take the gospel to our neighbors who don't quite look like us or think like us or live like us. And so there's this reality here that we need to step into that God will not relent until every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worship him for who he is. Revelation 7. And he's committed to his mission. And the Spirit's power is infinite. It's we who are finite. The same God who used a ragtag group of men and women to change the world by empowering them to live boldly as witnesses to Christ's lordship and kingdom is the same God who two millennia later is still calling us to the same thing. The movement is still active, so let's own it. That begins with our neighbors. And as we go through the next year or so, one of the things we're going to do is offer trainings. And we've talked about it. We want to equip you as powers. We want to equip, empower, and entrust you with the mission that God has given you and help you to feel confident that the Holy Spirit is going to, not not confident necessarily in yourself, but confident in the God of the universe who is working in and through you to bring about his good work in this world. We want you to understand what it's like to be with Jesus. That's why we're going to do a training on how to read your Bible starting in April. We want you to learn how to converse with your neighbors about these beautiful truths of the gospel. We want you to be able to go to the nations. That's why we want to develop some different international partnerships so you can actually go and get out of your comfort zone here. And those trips, by the way, are not to be destination vacations because a lot of mission trips I've been on have seemingly been that way. They're to get you into the real nitty-gritty life of the people that we're going to be partnering with and that we actually have skin in the game with. Jesus is committed to this mission and so should we. We should be very committed to this mission. But where do we begin? Where do we, what are we supposed to do right now? How do we move forward? Because quite frankly, if you're in this room, you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't know where in the world to begin. Well, let's look at where the disciples began. They were given a com- command to be witnesses, and as soon as Jesus ascends, they're left looking like a bunch of lost puppies. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's incredible. We'll pause there. That's stinking awesome. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just as he had given them their marching orders. In verse 8, boom, he's gone. He ascended into heaven right in front of their eyes, and they're left standing there in a stupor, kind of dumbstruck like, uh, what what in the actual heck did I just see? Like, that's where they're at. And then it literally takes two men dressed in white, or angels, to wake them up out of their stupor by saying, yo, why are you still looking up? He's gone. But what did he promise you? What did he promise you? He's coming back again, you know that. But he also promised that you're going to receive power. You're going to learn what you're supposed to do. He's taught to you about sending a helper or a guide or a counselor, a wonderful counselor who will guide you. But can you imagine what they're feeling in that moment? I imagine myself as the lost child in Walmart. Like, 
Mom and dad were here. They're gone. What am I supposed to do? Well, they did the thing he taught them to do. They trusted and obeyed. Look at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Hold up. Pause. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together, by the way, this is important, Ladies in the room, read this with me. With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The disciples of Jesus were not only men. Women were there too. There's importance here. They committed themselves themselves to prayer and waiting on the Lord, which, by the way, has seemed to be the key ingredient for every major outpouring of the Spirit since. Look at every great quote-unquote revival or reawakening that's ever happened, and I guarantee prayer is what is preceding it. A people devoted to praying and trusting that the God of the universe is still active, he's still going on the move, and he still wants to change people using ragtag group of teachers and school administrators and healthcare professionals and engineers people who, who work in restaurants, people who work for international nonprofit organizations, all of us in this room, he's still wanting to use you and me every single day. He's not stopped. He's not relenting. What are we waiting on? We're waiting on him to move. But what are we supposed to do in the waiting? All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Let me take you behind the curtain a little bit to a conversation we were having as elders Friday, guys. If I'm wrong on this, just call me out. I don't think there's anything that's wrong about me saying this. One of the things that we want to do as an elder group, as a body, is to say, how can we equip and trust, empower and entrust you for the work of the ministry? One thing we know, we can't alone empower you. That's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit empowering you. But we can definitely equip you and we can definitely entrust you. But one of the things that we are fearful of and that we've noticed even within our own Sunday morning gatherings is if you're learning from this, how much are you learning to pray? How much are we praying together? And that's something you're going to see change over time. It's not going to be overnight, but there are going to be some different emphases put on prayer as a body. Because here's the thing. This is powerful. That these men and women... Trust and obey God enough that they take his command to wait and they go and pray and they lean into his power, his presence, his promises to empower their witness and and they just obey. And what happens? Well, what happens in Acts 2? The Spirit comes as promised. Surprise. And these men and women this ragtag group of fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, all of a sudden are able to speak in languages not their own. People are hearing the gospel through their message. 
They're repenting and believing. And it says day by day, the numbers are adding up and the numbers are multiplying. People are coming to faith in Jesus. And then we see 2024, we're sitting in a room still a part of that movement. Their prayers are still effective today. What about ours? What if God wants to prick the hearts of a young church in New Market, Alabama to pray and wait expectantly on him? Better yet, what if he wants to prick the hearts of multiple local iterations of the Big C Church in New Market, Hazel Green, Meridianville to pray, to believe, and to wait? And in our waiting, not be, not be just, well, I'm, I'm just going to hole up in my room but to be actively living the life, providing for our families, doing the things we need to do, but all along waiting and coming together and saying, God, we know you still move. Will you please move? Will you please save my neighbors across the road from me? Please. Will you please empower the K's who are being commissioned this morning, who we have supported Empower them with a beautiful witness to people in Southeast Asia. Would you please empower me to be able to speak to my coworker who I see every day, who our conversation goes no further than Alabama or Auburn football, and let us have a moment where we can be real and where, God, you move in such a powerful way that you speak through me and you redeem this man or woman. What if we took a page from the playbook of these early disciples? What if we committed ourselves to prayer and waiting on him? What would happen? I think the scripture comes to my mind, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. If he can take a ragtag group of these people, he can take us and use us. What would that look like? I guess we'll have to wait till next week because Acts 2 kind of like plays that out a little bit more in Acts 2, 42 through 47. So, Come back next week. We'll get to that. Um, but in the meantime, as we slow down for communion with Jesus through the Lord's Supper, I think it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit of the living God, God the Spirit, resides in those of us who are in Christ. The very power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and I. The person of the Holy Spirit. What if we actually believe that God wants to change the world through our little church? It's not a prideful thing to believe. It's not. He's going to use the church one way or another, but it's not a prideful thing to believe. God, can you help us to build the name of your name rather than multiply church? We don't want to build a kingdom of ourselves. It'll fall. But if we're building the kingdom of God, man. What if you believe deep down that God actually wanted to use you to bring about his will in the lives of your neighbors and the nations? What would that look like? Maybe. Just maybe, that's the question to dwell on this week. What would it look like if I actually believe deep down that God actually wants to use me? And then what if I believe that he will? That's powerful.